Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast by the Adam McCarr Foundation, where we go behind the stories of a circular economy. And this is part four and the final part of a series we've been running on this podcast where we're recounting the highlights from our March 31st event, Innovation Day event at the Roundhouse, where we shone the spotlight on circular economy innovation, the positive impacts for biodiversity loss and climate change that it can deliver, where it's happening now, and specifically for this week, how do we accelerate and scale this transition? Once again, she's been here the whole series. She's back here for episode four. It's Jules. Hi, Seb. I'm sort of imagining people in home going, woo. <laughs> this is me back for the fourth and final episode where we are reminiscing about that innovation day in London. And as Seb said, in today's episode, we're going to talk all about scale. So throughout this series, we've zoomed in on different sectors. Well, today we'll be looking out across various sectors and looking at some of the key actors that we need to make this transformation happen. In this episode, I speak to Safia Qureshi, the founder of Club Zero, a a reusable packaging solution, as well as two city-based policymakers with Oriana Romano from the OECD and Lamia Spiti from ReLondon. And I speak to Jessica Vieira from Appeal and Aline Casagrande from AB InBev. You will also hear from Emily, who's one of our colleagues at the foundation, in conversation with Georgia Sherwin from Closed Loop Partners and Jamie Butterworth from Circularity Capital. This is going to be our hardest working episode, Jules. We're cramming a lot in. And what you're going to hear is that whilst there's a huge amount of reason to be optimistic about the success and emergence of circular economy innovation in various places, much more is still needed, in particular from these key actors in the business, policy and finance segments of the economy. And what becomes really clear from these conversations is that while investment and money is critical, alone it is not enough. There is much more innovation needed to make it all happen. So let's start. I have had the pleasure to speak with Safia Qureshi many, many times over the time over the course of her career of getting Club Zero off the ground. This was one of the best and strongest, most clear responses she's given to me on the question of what's really needed to go from kind of successful, cool pilots to real scale and real impact. So let's hear what she had to say when I asked her, how are we going to make this happen? I think it's it's moving the needle. Like if you look at examples like um, electric cars, electric cars, EV, we're at peak Tesla now in 2022. Their journey started back in 2006, 2007. Um, So to to socialise this idea into a consumer's mind is the first fundamental key thing. Um, All of us are already believers. We're in the room together. But when we leave, immediately the world around you hits you. The reality of what we do hits you. And so how do we socialise this concept? That has to happen across multi-stakeholder um, it has to happen through government. It has to happen through multi-communication channels. It can't just be me as a startup telling everybody this exists. Please go try it. Um, and so socializing this concept of reuse, the idea that you can go into a restaurant or cafe and that they will automatically offer you a reusable is something that should be normal. And I believe it'll be there within two years' time. By the way, you've guaranteed me that this box that we've Made you sit on, on that. will... Hold yes. me for the next four minutes. It will. So if it anything will. bad happens, 
Um, <laughs> you owe me something. But yeah, so just to dig into that idea a bit, like, what do we mean when we talk about trying to build customer demand? Because it's not, you know, like, it almost sounds like we're trying to make people want something they don't want. But that's can't be right, surely. That's exactly it, actually. Yep. You want to exactly make someone it. want what they don't want. Uh, well, you didn't know you wanted an iPhone until you saw it. You didn't know you wanted a electric vehicle until you saw it. Now, 25% of all automobile sales are electric. And that tells you something. So we have to fundamentally, everyone in this room, are the people who have to help as well in terms of socializing this. And once you socialize, you get the idea in someone's mind. It takes them a long time to want to slowly shift. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an early doctor of EV. I now have an EV. I would say I'm actually peak EV, as far as I can tell. So I'm not even first generation EV, as I might be first generational pioneers in reuse. Um, so there are certain people along the journey that get you there and becomes a movement over time. It's not something that happens overnight. I guess that's why the permission of pilots is good, because it gives you that kind of interaction with the customer to kind of learn the wrinkles and also start to build up that familiarity. Um, and then you also mentioned, uh, both in the film but also on stage, policy. Policy yeah. makers, governments and yeah. their role. You know, it's easy to say, of course, we need policy. Is there anything specific we need from policymakers? What you need from policymakers? Well, I, I, it's annoying that we've fallen out of the European policy um, for the Circular Economy Plan, but certainly that has, that has really sped um, policy across food service in particular. So we're seeing from the 1st of January 2023 mandates for reusable packaging across food service, France, Germany, um, number of list of number of uh, countries that are participating within that. That's fantastic. That means you go from what we see woefully at 2% for reusable across packaging to, guess number? 10%. 40%. Amazing. That's huge. So when people say, well, regulate, yes, regulations definitely move the needle because, and it isn't, it isn't even incremental. This is within a matter of months, everybody in food service will go from literally zero to 40% reusable packaging across their product lines. That's huge. So Safia helps us understand that we do need to build some customer familiarity with these new models and demand for these models and actually lays out how if we've got the right legislation and the right policies, we can have a really big impact. And speaking about policy, I, in the same event, I had the chance to catch up with Oriana from the OECD and Lamia from ReLondon both of whom work in a context where they're aiming to stimulate circular economy innovation among the SME communities of cities. Obviously, Lamia in London, Oriana across a range of cities that the OECD Circular Economy Programme works with. And I started by asking Oriana about something that she'd said to me previously, which was that she's seeing a palatable shift in various cities that are now beginning to look at circular economy as much more than just better recycling or a waste management agenda. 
Well, first, it all starts with the semantics. It's the use of words that is really different. Um, what were waste department, now they are circular economy departments uh, in many cities, like uh, small cities like Tallinn in Estonia, we're working with at the moment, Buenos Aires, a huge city. And this doesn't mean that things will change from a day to another, but definitely provide a totally different perspective, a more holistic one that goes beyond waste, which is seen as an issue to deal with, towards resources as opportunities. And there are several examples, several initiatives all around, uh, for example, in Paris, where I live, there is a district uh, which is the fourth biggest business district uh, whereby 30 companies, uh, they share services, equipment, infrastructure, they do carpooling, they reduce uh, food packaging and so on. So they are trying really to experiment what a circular district and then cities could be. And this is not the only example. There are many others. So meaning that the circular economy in cities is not utopia, but probably we're not there yet. So moving from kind of cleaning up mess to how do we design better cities? Exactly. And let me know, like your, the work at ReLondon, your work specifically, is focused on driving that kind of change through especially small and medium-sized businesses. Why that target group in London? Yeah, so um, the short answer is that the transition to a circular economy in London isn't going to happen without SMEs. 99% uh, of businesses in London are SMEs, and they account for over 50% of the business waste generated in the city. So we need them to be part of the transition to, to make the circular economy a reality on the ground. Um, and the flip side is that um, the, the small and medium-sized businesses are going to be the powerhouse for innovation because they're small, they're nimble, they're agile and close to the customers, so ideally positioned to really disrupt the market and introduce new circular business models. Um, and, you know, even large corporates or, you know, the public sector that wants to change and adopt the circular economy need SMEs to be on board because they make up the supply chain. And obviously it, it varies by industry, but if you take the, con uh, the construction industry, uh, the majority of service providers are SMEs. So the challenge, though, is that small businesses don't always have access to the information or the resources or the investment uh, for change. So that that's why, you know, we think it's really important to support them uh, and make sure that they can demonstrate and amplify um, all the, the impact they're having. And it's a very, a very there's a lot of variety in the, when we see SMEs, right? There's a lot of different kinds of SMEs. Where are, the, where, are there one or two places where there's any kind of signs of particular momentum? Like, is London ready for the circular economy? I mean, London's more than ready. London's already doing it. Um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, we've already worked with 300 businesses uh, looking to adopt or scale uh, circular business models. And um, we're already seeing them have great impact on the ground. So our five biggest food innovators, for example, alone, have tackled 26,000 tons of food waste in 2021. And that's five times more than two years before. So the rate of increase of impact is, is really exciting. Um, other signs of momentum um, are that we're starting to see multiple competing solutions come onto the market. So you've got multiple options now for refillable deodorant or zero-waste grocery shopping. So really, the, the market is maturing. Um, and we're seeing you know, that happening in the private sector, but there's also growing demand from the public sector to access this innovation, where we're seeing demand from local authorities to use the circular economy as a way to build economic resilience on the ground uh, through, through different programs. I mean, that's great to hear. And I guess like, you know, Oriana, one of the things that's, you know, that's the kind of momentum is clear, making the economics work at scale 
still a bit of a challenge. Um, what kinds of examples of mobilization has OECD seen? Like where are the signs of momentum across the cities you work with? So access to finance and mobilizing finance is, uh, is a huge challenge for cities. 73% of 52 cities we worked with, they actually argued that this is one of the obstacles. But there are many examples, like uh, the city of Valladolid in uh, 2018 mobilized 1 million euro for uh, 65 projects, and in 2019, additional 600,000. We worked with Glasgow, I know colleagues are here and through Zero with Scotland there are also several millions mobilized for that. But what I would like to say is that mobilizing, making the economics works doesn't only mean mobilizing finance. It means changing behavior. And so, for example, there are cities that are applying discount on taxes to make sure that this can create incentives for companies, for example, to uh, reduce food waste, reduce packaging. The same happens in San Francisco with a waste taxes discount in order to increase separate collection. So it is important to mobilize finance, but also to use economic instruments to change behaviors. So policy is crucial for stimulating the circular economy, especially that wider ecosystem with the hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of smaller players, the SMEs and startups. And there's also big businesses and they have an opportunity to potentially have a disproportionate impact across a pretty wide range of contexts. And that's what I spoke to Aline from AB InBev about. What is their approach to sparking and supporting innovation across a wide range of geographies? And also they're doing something a little bit different. They're also collaborating with organisations who you traditionally think were their competitors. The accelerator came after we launched our 2025 sustainability goals. And when we were mapping what we should do to be able to achieve uh, all our goals set up on climate action, circular packaging, sustainable agriculture, and water stewardship, we mapped what we already knew we could do to achieve. And we figured out we still have some open space and some things that we would have to disruptive and find innovations to overcome those challenges. Uh, so the accelerator came to help us close those gaps and to help us get connected with these new companies that are challenging the way we do business and helping us to, to achieve these goals. In packaging, uh, our goal is to have 100% of our packaging either returnable or made of majority recycled content. And returnable is really a big challenge for us. Uh, we already have 36.5% of our portfolio in returnables, but we know that convenience is still a big point for consumers. And these uh, challenge, together with some others, are things that we are trying to overcome with these new disruptive innovations. So within the accelerator, we are trying to find solutions for new packaging materials, rethinking the packaging materials that we have right now, uh, programs to increase collection and recycling rates, uh, as well as bringing traceability and transparency to, to everything that we are doing. So you've got a lot of activities going on <laughs> and you're global. So when you think about breaking some of these down, are you taking market-specific approaches? How does that actually play out? Yeah, that's an important thing. 
Um, although we are a global company, facing global challenges as many other companies here, we recognize that these complexes are very complex and they vary a lot from region to region. So we take a local approach. Uh, in every single market, what we do is we sit together with the team, we map all, all the challenges they have, we write all the challenge statements uh, with our local teams to be sure that we are trying to solve for their local problems as well. We also recognize that these entrepreneurs working with us, they are well connected in their own local community uh, and they know how to... Um, solve their own issues and also how to use the stakeholder network uh, to make things happen. So local is definitely one of the key things. Uh, of course, we also try to find and bet on innovations that are scalable. Mm -hmm. uh, so although we are piloting locally, the idea is to uh, bring that solution into other markets that have similarities. So one great example is in 2020, we pilot with Nomo Ways, that is a Colombian startup. Uh, we pilot a recovery program for one-way bottles. Uh, the idea was to bring these bottles back to be reused. Uh, and what we did was we learned with them. We understood if they wanted to be in other markets, uh, we decided together with them, we were going to do in another way. Uh, and we are expanding now the program in Mexico. So we launched the big program in Mexico, uh, counting red with more than 30 allies. And what we do is we connect with the waste management. And uh, through this program, they are bringing back this, these uh, empty bottles that we are cleaning, uh, inspecting, refilling, and bringing it back to the market. So we are avoiding the production of 100 million bottles so far, wow. um, avoiding of course, greenhouse green gas emissions, as well as being able to pay more for this material than a cut, for example. Amazing. And we've only got time for one more question, but very quickly, something that you've done that's quite interesting is work with peers. So for example, Coca-Cola, why did you take that approach and what does that actually look like? Yeah, so last year, the Coca-Cola company Unilever uh, and Colgate Palmolive joined us in the accelerator. And the idea here is... One, we have very ambitious uh, goals, all the companies here actually, uh, and we know that if we want to really create and do the transformation needed, we have to work together to, to be able to find uh, solutions that are scalable and in the speed that we need. Uh, so I think this was the main thing. We just heard from Aline that a context and a place-based approach is really critical to this innovation. And we're just going to keep on firing along because we're going to dive in with another key player in the system. We've heard from the policymakers. We've heard from uh, a large business. We've heard a bit from a startup telling us what they need. We haven't yet heard from the investment sector. Pretty crucial, Jules. Where's the money coming from? Well, we need to know. The foundation's Emily Healy uh, from our finance initiative spoke with Jamie Butterworth from Circularity Capital and Georgia Sherwin from Closed Loop Partners. Both of these organisations are at the forefront of investment in the circular economy or circular economy innovation. And Emily started by asking Jamie about his time as the former CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and where the seed of the idea for circularity capital came from. 
Yeah, so I think when you're at the foundation, you're constantly thinking how to scale. And you're thinking what interactions you could make to really scale up. And back in 2009, we were captivated by the concept of the circular economy. We'd read lots of literature about it, but there was nothing out there about how it actually creates financial value. So we ended up working together with McKinsey and producing a report called Towards the Circular Economy to demonstrate how much value the circular economy could create. And I believe that played a role in corporates getting more interested in the circular economy as it was launched at the World Economic Forum in 2011. I think the next logical step in my mind was investors are a bit different and we have to think like an institutional investor. So big sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance companies, funder funds who own the majority of the capital in the world. And the way that those actors react is based on returns, right? So they invest more money if they see good returns. So to me, it became critical to demonstrate how the circular economy can drive premium financial returns alongside measurable positive non-financial impact. And that was the genesis behind setting up a fund that had the right skill set to select the best of these types of companies and then bring them the right support to help them to grow and achieve their full potential. And Georgia, closely, we're another early mover in this space, focusing on specific um, needs of circular economy companies and innovation. So what does that mean for the types of financial solutions that you offer? Thanks, Emily. I think um, what we've really seen is different kinds of companies require really, really different funding needs. And that's based on their, the growth stage of the company and the type of the company. So, for example, a company that provides composting infrastructure versus a company that um, provides digital technolo technological solutions uh, to trace supply chains will have very different needs. And so Closely Partners was really set up to meet the diverse funding needs and meet companies exactly where they are. Um, so we span, we have an innovation center and we then span venture capital, growth equity, project-based finance and private equity. So that kind of goes through from the really early stage to the later stage where we're actually acquiring companies uh, to build circular supply chains. So ultimately, you know, we really, our goal is to build the circular economy. And so we're, we're, our platform is set up to create that flexibility um, to, to meet the diverse needs. So looking around the room today, I think there are far more innovators than we would have seen even five years ago. So Jamie, I'm wondering, what are the things that have really created this market and created a fertile ground for circular economy investors? Yeah, I think there's four things. I think the first one is just the recognition that in the right context, these circular businesses can create more value. So companies can develop deeper margin, margins, stickier customer relationships. They become, become more valuable and grow faster. Secondly, I think we're increasingly seeing a sustainability imperative. So this is a generation of consumers demanding to know more about the provenance of products. And it's also more regulatory legislative pressure. Thirdly, technology is definitely enabling this transition. So knowing more about the status, location, demand, condition of products allows us to develop more business models. And finally, there's a really attractive exit environment. So we're seeing an increasing number of investors looking for financial return alongside some societal problem solved. So call it ESG in a more purist form, impact investing, and they're combining to really accelerate this transition. So those are some of the things that can help, but we've heard you know, for some of the speakers today that there are barriers and not every great circular economy idea gets invested in. So what is already happening or could already happen or could happen to break those barriers and really drive momentum in this space? Yeah, so I guess at our level, that's all about 
building up a really good picture of what best-in-class looks like for these kind of businesses. So looking at lots of the same types of companies, establishing what the key attributes are and also what the common challenges are and how as an investor we can bring the right toolkit to support the management teams to unlock their full potential. I think at a higher level, there's a number of things and many of them have been spoken about today, but I think collaboration. I also think anything that internalizing the external costs so, for example, reducing VAT on remanufacturing through to increasing, incre putting a cost on carbon. And also organizations like this, the Alan MacArthur Foundation, which is bringing people together. There's also, we've got Zero Waste Scotland, we've got ReLondon, we've got people from all over the world who are actually bringing people together to, uh, to hear more about the amazing solutions out there. And Georgia, I want to stick on this driving momentum theme. Are you seeing your work start to filter through to the sphere of mainstream capital? Are larger investors starting to invest in the companies that you might have invested in? Yes, definitely, which is really positive to see. I think generally during the pandemic, there was a concern that sustainability or circularity might be put on the back burner. But really, we've seen the opposite is, is true. And there's been a massive acceleration of investment activity across the board. Um, and maybe to make it a bit more tangible, I think, you know, one example is a company that we invested in um, early on. We gave them a loan, which was a company called Temper Pack. They create uh, an alternative, a sustainable alternative to styrofoam. And they very recently closed on a new equity round of 140 million, and that was led by Goldman Sachs. And so it's these kind of indicators uh, that more traditional mainstream capital is seeing the value of circular solutions uh, to you know, mitigate climate risks, to meet ESG goals, and then fundamentally to kind of build more resilient supply chains. So it's, it's really encouraging. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so what's your message to the innovators online and in the room? Uh, what should they focus on to really have the best chance of their circular innovation being investable? Great question. I think it's a couple of things. I think number one is to be really effective in communicating their impact story. I think as more and more innovators enter the space, um, having verifiable impact data to support uh, the work that they do is going to be really important to differentiate themselves and, and be authentic. Um, I think the second is always look, we're looking for sort of the market appetite indicators. And so whether that's a letter of intent from a client, pilots or, or contracts that are in place, that helps show a market signal um, in the right direction. And then lastly, as the team always, you know, a phenom phenomenal team is critical and mission driven and, and smart. I love some of the little nuggets that come out of these conversations and hearing both Georgia and Jamie kind of describe how closed loop and circularity capital are aiming to demonstrate the opportunity to lay the path for like actually really big investment to unlock and invest in a circular economy, to prove the case, if you like, to get involved, to help to accelerate transition was really inspiring and really interesting. And talking about big investment, in this final section, I am joined by Jessica from Appeal. And this is a circular economy innovator that has arguably achieved the startup dream, unicorn status. What is unicorn status? Well, it basically means that they've achieved a billion dollar valuation without being listed on the stock market. But as we've heard earlier in the episode, money alone is not enough. So I started asking her, how did Appeal achieve such rapid growth? Well, I mean, in the very beginning, it was really about starting with the problem. I think most people in this room are familiar with the fact that a third of all food produced for consumption goes to waste. 
That represents about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions when you take all of the resources that are used to produce that food and distribute it into account. At the same time, one in nine people are going hungry. Um, and for some types of food, specifically highly perishable food, these waste rates are even higher, upwards to 50%. And so what we identified was really part of the issue was time. It wasn't that you know, we weren't producing enough food to feed the need of the global community. It was that we didn't have time to get that food to those who need it, or that, at least that's one of the biggest factors. So we set out on this mission to try to create more time, specifically for fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, flash forward six years later through R&D, um, and with really two main guiding principles. One, we don't think that anything should be on your food except for food. So really, in looking at the suite of materials that we could use, that was a core component. And the other was, you know, nature is the greatest innovator, and that's really who we look to. So instead of going into the lab and synthesizing something the world had never seen before, we studied the peels and skins of fruits and vegetables to understand what was it about the molecular structure or specific components that were creating the barrier that slowed down water loss and oxidation naturally, for lack of a better word. Why is it that when you pick an apple off the tree, it doesn't immediately go to mush? And so that was the inspiration for our product. So after this kind of six years of identifying those specific molecules and developing this product, we thought, great, you know, we have this product, fruits and vegetables last twice as long, clearly this will be valuable. We'll go to the produce suppliers and we'll say, like, we can make your fruit last twice as long. And they said, you know, that's great, but the retailer's trash can is my best customer. Why would I want to make these foods last twice as long? And that's when we really started to learn and understand how the incentives of different stakeholders in the value chain were really critical in developing our business model, something that I think most or very many circular economy innovators are facing. And you've just touched on, you know, the ability and the need to figure out your place in that ecosystem. Yeah. If you're also thinking about the citizens going into shops, buying products, you've got a very clear story to tell, but how relevant or how prevalent was that customer demand from the beginning? And did that help you scale? So we provide an invisible product for an invisible problem. So we're still, and that's one of, I think, the biggest important factors as we continue to scale is educating the consumer. But really what I think that first main hurdle for us in business model development was starting to talk directly to the retailers. We still would need to work in their upstream supply chain to apply our product and have really wonderful supplier partners now, but the retailers are the ones who saw the value. They have waste on their shelves, there are plastic packaging issues, they're responding to the consumer who is starting to understand these issues and value um, having more sustainable options at the store. And so the retailers were the ones who really started to create those incentives. And then their suppliers you know, want to service the retailers, want to provide a better option, want to connect more with the consumer. Um, but I would say one of our biggest challenges is that education piece. And as we've scaled globally, the research we have to do, the work we have to do with the retailers to communicate about a product in the produce section where there's very limited real estate for any kind of messaging. 
um, we have to get very creative and we're trying things with QR codes and messaging out that side of the store and you know, working with certain retailers to do even in-store demonstrations of our product for consumers because you know, they might not see that tiny, I don't know, third of a centimeter logo on the sticker in, in the store. Mm. And kind of as you've gone through this journey, clearly you've received a lot of funding, you've done a lot of research, there's a clear problem you're solving, and you've got a very clear vision of where you want to go. As you project yourself into the future, one or two years, do you then have everything you need or what's going to be the next unlock for you? Scaling, it happens in a number of different dimensions. So I I touched on the need to continuously educate consumers and understand what more time means for each market segment, for even each supply chain. You know, one supply chain might find value in shifting logistics so they can go buy sea freight instead of air freight. Um, Some, it's all about food waste or plastic packaging. So really having strong partnerships where we're bringing stakeholders at different stages of the value chain to the table, the suppliers who we're applying our product with, the retailers who are right in front of consumers to figure out how do we get more value out of this additional time is a big part of that. Um, We also... Every new product that we work on is a new journey. Um, The reasons you throw away a banana are very different than the reasons that you throw away a lime or an apple. And so understanding even what shelf life means and what specific quality factors we need to affect for it to be less likely to go to waste is a huge part of launching every new product Mm. for us. And at the same time, produce is grown all over the world to serve the same markets. And you can't really go to a retailer and say, I can, oh, we have this great product, but we can only offer it during the Spanish growing season. They're like, well, I don't want to carry something. I can only carry six months out of the year. So oftentimes, you know, we've had to develop multiple integrations in different continents in order to supply one skew for one retailer. So it's kind of a complex business model, um, but it's exciting to get that traction. And we've shown that our product can reduce food waste on shelves by 50%, uh, really across regions and contexts. And what we're really excited about now is measuring that impact in consumer homes too. Amazing. We've only got time for one last question. I'm sure there's a lot of innovators online and in the audience today hoping to get to the position that your startup has managed to. Based on your experience, what is the one piece of advice you would give to those people? I think the biggest thing is to not lose sight of the problem. You know, we say we want to be obsessed with the problem that we're solving, not the solution. We've changed our business model many times, and we're still trying out new things, Um, even understanding what is shelf life? Like, it seemed simple, but we're still asking ourselves that question with new types of produce. Um, So I think, yeah, being obsessed with the problem and our head of R&D kind of jokes when he walks into the room, this is probably not the best way that this table was built, We just don't question it. And so thinking like that really in everything from business model development to R&D, I think just puts you in a position where you're guessing and checking a lot because that's the only way you learn. So we've just heard 
a lot about finance and we know it is a clear enabler to this transition to a circular economy, helping these startups scale. But there's lots of other factors that play a role and can help accelerate this transformation. Businesses and policymakers also have crucial roles to play. I've got two insights to share with you, Jules, that I've taken away from this whole four-part series. These are the things that Seb cares about. And, you know, like I often think when we talk about a circular economy, when I talk about a circular economy to people, they're often looking for me to give them like the kind of like A plus B equals C answer to this problem. When we're actually talking about how do we change the way the whole economy works? How do we change the world? It's actually quite hard to have an A plus B equals C solution to that problem. We kind of have to, you, you've talked a bit on this podcast about iteration, learning, got to kind of set some principles, check in along the way. And there are two things that feel really important to me about this series well, that with speak this setup, to that theme. I need to know what these two things are. <laughs> I hope I haven't overplayed it. The first one is that we need more and more innovators and more and more innovation. We can't stop innovating. We can't stop calling for innovation. That's never going to end. We don't want it to end. It's how we've got to where we are today. And there's some of the most amazing things that the things that we have around us have come as an outcome of constant iteration and innovation. And we need that for a circular economy to work. We can't stop banging that drum and finding the mechanisms and ways that kind of foster the right kinds of innovations and solutions. So if you hear the word innovation a lot in this series, it's kind of a good thing because if we weren't saying innovation, we wouldn't be saying the right thing. The other word that I think we need to keep saying, and I shared with the audience live on the live broadcast we did that, um, you know, like there's moments when I think, God, am I just talking about the same stuff over and over again? Like I've been working at the foundation for eight years. When am I going to come up with something that isn't about scale? But actually my feeling about that is, if I wasn't talking about scale, if we at the foundation and our partners weren't talking about how do we scale this transformation, what are we actually talking about? If we're trying to change the world, we need to be talking about scale. And it's also kind of a hard thing to do. Um, so scale, continue to talk about innovation, continue to talk about scale, just like we've done in this series. Basically, I'm saying that what we've done is the exact right thing. But just like we've done in this series is vital and engaging all of the different stories and different actors and different things that we need to engage with to make that happen is crucial. Love it. I would add one third word to that. Brilliant. That's Pace. all things in threes are important. Yeah. Pace. Well, we need A plus B is C. This is not going to work, but innovation, scale, and at the pace we need it. We need to go faster. Yeah. There you go. That's my take. So... That's it from our four-part series. It has been a joy to join the podcast audience and talk about our Innovation Day event. We heard how the circular economy is regenerative by design and how that benefits us mitigate against climate change and tackle biodiversity loss. We've seen multiple places where it's happening and not just happening, but happening right now. And as we just said, we've explored what's needed to help us keep innovating and accelerate this transformation at the pace and scale required. It's been really emotional for me to look back on the, that event, Jules, and to reminisce about some of the big moments with you. So thank you for joining the podcast and thank you to everyone who's born with us and has listened to it along the way as well hopefully you've managed to catch most of the series and if you like this content if you like these podcasts there's a good chance that you'll like 
all of the Animal Craft Foundation's podcasts, or at least some of them. So if you want to be notified when we publish new podcasts, the only way to do that really is to subscribe to the Circle Economy Show podcast by the Animal Craft Foundation on whichever podcast channel you listen to. And hopefully we'll see Jules again. I guess like we may not speak again now until the next big event or the next big piece of content. Maybe not, but um, it's been a pleasure to join you and maybe see you all soon. <laughs>